Daniel Handler is the author of seven novels. As Lemony Snicket, he is responsible for numerous books for children, including Swarm of Bees, illustrated by Rilla Alexander. His books have sold more than 70 million copies and have been translated into 40 languages and have been adapted for screen and stage. The first season of Netflix's adaptation of a series of unfortunate events for which he served as an executive producer and writer won a 2018 Peabody Award for its lively excellence, strange silliness, and compelling storytelling. And the teleplay won a 2019 Writers Guild Award. Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, welcome to the creative process. Uh, thank you. So, you know... I look forward to being creatively processed. <laughs> oh, I don't want to process your creativity. Makes <laughs> it sound like work. Um, well, <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're an education initiative, so it's a lot of young people, and they're really, you know, they look forward to ha the possibility of having a career in, in the arts, and they look to your, you know, long and successful career, and I want to ask you, is like, how, how can we do it? How can we make a job of not growing up, if we if I'm simplifying it too much. Make a job of not growing up. Is that what I do? Goodness gracious. Well, I mean, I think how I feel about literature is that it was always something I was passionate about and mm -hmm. passionate about being connected to. Mm -hmm. So as a reader when I was young and then um, almost immediately um, around the same age as a, as a writer, that was something that I wanted to participate in. And I think that participating in an art form that is appealing to you is really the biggest reward of being involved with it. Um, there's certainly many challenges depending on what kind of art form you're doing um, in terms of making a living at it. And it is almost impossible in almost all of the art forms to do so. <laughs> but I think seeing that it is not just about your own uh, creativity and your own output and your own voice, but it is part of a tradition mm -hmm. in which you are participating. And I think that's where the real satisfaction comes from a career in a creative field. Yes. And I, did, I didn't mean to say not growing up, but I guess for... Um, I, I think um, with the kind of sense of longing of uh, towards you you've written for adults you've written for young people and I just think about right when I think imagine writing for young people that they've you have these freedoms but I don't know if you feel the same way you know that they're willing to go on a journey and have rules be broken and things like that well, I think what is most exciting is that it's a very passionate readership. You know, mm -hmm. you never love a book the way you love a book when you are 10. Mm -hmm. And I think to be a part of that kind of sacred space and that kind of sacred exchange between a reader and literature is very exciting. And then it's true that there's just a different um, mindset. I mean, it's difficult to speak super generally about yes people of a certain age, but um, there is a kind of mindset that I think you see in, in younger readers um, that is more about the immediate accessibility and pleasure that, um, that the writing brings you. You know, I think yeah. if, you, if you're an adult and you pick up Madame Bovary and you find the first four pages really boring, you may have a sense 
that Madame Bovary is a work of importance that has meant something to a lot of people and so that perhaps you're the one who's wanting and you'll feel pressure to keep going. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the case very often mm-hmm. with young people and books. It's either interesting to you or it isn't. And to learn that the author is celebrated or esteemed or um, has sold a gazillion copies or has won a bunch of prizes, I don't think any of those things are um, really part of most young readers' experiences. In fact, um, I think often when you're a child you love a book and when you're a grown-up you have no idea even who wrote it you know Mm -hmm. there's something that you've read a million times Mm -hmm. and when you were a child you'd never looked at the author's name Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that's what you mean i don't know what i mean i'm here just to listen and learn but um (laughs) (laughs) no i'm here to know what you mean but yeah i know um i guess maybe it's a little bit like comedy like it's not you can't intellectualize it it's like did I believe, did you take me there, you know? And, you know, did I laugh at that joke? Or it's not like some kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a kind of writing, I think, in which you have to be very aware of your audience. And mm-hmm. I think one division between artists is whether or not they're thinking about who is consuming their art. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really wonderful made wonderful art made by people who are not thinking about an audience at all. Mm-hmm. Um and then, but I think in children's literature, it's almost impossible because you're probably not a child when you're writing children's literature. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost impossible not to picture some child mm-hmm. and not, not maybe not a specific child, but to picture some mindset. And I think that that is what feels unique to me about, about writing for children is that you do have to think about that in one way or another. And it doesn't mean you have to follow a certain formula or anything like that, but I think you can't help but be curious about the kind of mind that a young person is having when you're making art for it. Sure. And what kind of, you speak about young readers, so what kind of young reader were you? Um, Voracious and serious. I went to the library regularly um, and I had a very good uh, children's librarian, and then at, um, and then she kind of led me to the adult section when I was in middle school. She said, mm-hmm. I don't think we have anything more for you here. And she kind of pushed me into the adult section, and I had no supervision there. Uh, I had nobody who was suggesting things or guiding me towards things, and that was really delicious. Mm-hmm. And so many books in my library then were packaged in such a way that told you hardly any information about them at all. So you mm-hmm. would just look for an intriguing title or mm-hmm. just something that looked kind of good about it. Mm-hmm. And you would take it home and, um, and try to solve the mystery from there. So I was very engaged in um, reading a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I like about your writing for, um, well, your writing across um, for, for young and old, but um, is that you're not also pandering to the intelligence of that. You're accepting the complexities and the darknesses and the fears and the of, of young people, what they might be experiencing, where perhaps as you remember that the world is a perplexing place, particularly when you don't know all the rules. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, literature that acknowledges the bewildering circumstances of being a human being is the most interesting literature, right? That's what has survived. When you look at the most ancient pieces of literature that have lasted the longest, they're not realistic portrayals of what people were doing every day. They're these very um, fantastical, often allegorical kind of stories. And 
There's a lot of people who have theories why, and I'm one of them, and I think that it is about the acknowledgement of how bewildering the world was. And I think particularly back then, when there was often so little, little information available to you, um, a story that acknowledged that was very powerful. And I think it's definitely for children for who are, by definition, less experienced in the world, um, they're trying to figure things out all the time. And a, and a book is a containable way of putting something bewildering in perspective. Can you tell me, because um, I also had the opportunity to interview um, Neil Patrick Harris, so I, I guess, and I think that you're a big part of your fan base is um, this, the, the readers of a, a series of unfortunate events. Um, just a bit about the origins of Count Olaf, Violet Klaus, and, and Sunny, and you know, this whole <laughs> strange um, world. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm certainly beholden to Mr. Harris, who put a lot of uh, dedication and energy and um, thoughtfulness into his portrayal of Count Olaf, and he's certainly brought that character to so many people, and um, I'm grateful for his work on that. I think the journey of the Baudelaire's over the course of a series of unfortunate events as they grow older and they become more immersed in the kind of dreadful corruption that they see around them, and it becomes increasingly hard for them to discern if their activities are in fact making the world a better place or making it a worse one. And in Count Olaf, you see someone who also went through that that time and then emerged out of it kind of full of evil and triumphant over what chaos he could sow. Mm-hmm. And I think for the Baudelaire's, they look at Count Olaf and they don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope there wasn't a Count Olaf figure. I hope this is mainly fantastical. <laughs> well, there was no one quite as, as dedicatedly nasty in my life. But, um, I mean, I think everyone's childhood is full of injustices in one world word or another. So yeah. the injustices that I encountered in my childhood by the global standards of injustice and trauma were very, very minor. But um, they were upsetting to me, as they are when you're a child. Yeah. Things that aren't fair to you or feeling like you're not wanted or welcome, um, those are powerful emotions. Sure. And everything is it can be exaggerated, as you say, in a child's mind. Like a, an, an ordinary pain can seem like it was inflicted by a monster or, um, you know, that's the wonderful thing about childhood. Well, I think we're all like that. We're just mm-hmm. encouraged to be more upset about it when we're children. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably the thing that bothers you most in your life is not some great cat- catastrophic thing that you know about, mm-hmm. right? It's probably some ordinary injustice. You mm-hmm. know, the hardest that we ever cry as adults is not when we learn about genocide. It's mm-hmm. when someone hurts our feelings. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, um, I, I think when you're a child, you get to express that with more free reign. And when you're an adult, you have to kind of pretend that's not what upsets you. And speak a bit. Of, there's a lot of illusions. I don't know if um, all the young people, you know, when they when they come across um, a series of unfortunate events, um, would see all of that. But you, you know, in terms even their name Baudelaire and Poe, and and I don't know if they're influences or. But these are books or these are writers that you loved when you were young. Um, some of them were writers that I loved when I was young, and some of them were writers that I came across later in life. But um, the power of literature and the power of books is so prevalent in a mm-hmm. series of unfortunate events. You know, there's yeah. a library in every volume, and mm-hmm. all the secrets and all of the um, the codes and all of the 
things that save them and all the things that draw them into the mystery, those are all from books. And so it made sense to me to construct a world that was entirely governed by literature. Mm-hmm. And what was your beloved library growing up? I mean, you spoke of it. Um, I mean, my beloved public library was the West Portal Library here in San Francisco, where I still live. Um, and that was where I went most often. But um, my parents were big readers, and so we were in a house that was full of books. And my parents didn't really give me any restrictions on what I might read. Mm-hmm. It's, it's lovely to have grown up that way. I think that fewer, well, particularly now they're all closed, but... Um, fewer young people are having that experience of libraries. It's kind of strange because I think that the search, you know, coming upon a book, stumbling upon it, or as you said, not knowing whether it's an adult book or a book for children, because um, just the the adventure of that is, is, is interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the switches that's happened kind of over my lifetime is moving from kind of an analog, uh, corporal, uh, library type experience to something that's more digital mm-hmm. and I think the, the great advantage to the way digital information is archived and held in libraries and held online mm-hmm. is that it's really searchable so if you're looking for something specific you can really find it mm-hmm. right and I grew up in a childhood where if you didn't remember the title of the book you were never going to find it if you heard mm-hmm. a lyric of, on radio and you the song really struck you you could never find out what it was and I think now that's it's the opposite you can find out instantly what's playing on the radio or um, you can google all kinds of things and get closer and closer to a book that might be on your mind even if you don't remember what it is mm-hmm. but the downside is this, there's less serendipity and there's less accidental discovery you can't really browse in a digital archive. You can't browse Google for something interesting. You can look for anything that you want, but you can't say, oh, I don't really know what I want. Can you show me some things? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the, the big shift that has happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sense of discovery. It's, it's interesting because it's kind of saying you have to know where you want to go. Um, and I think that that's really important to to keep this sense of not knowing what you want to discover. I mean, we see this now in terms of education, um, that they become universities have become professional schools, and so you have to decide what you'll be good at before you even start it. What do you, I mean? What are your thoughts? Because uh, this is something we like to. It's an education initiative. So, what are your thoughts on education? You're in uh, a city, or I'm in favor of it. Yes, correct. No, I don't mind admitting it. <laughs> it's okay, just between us. No, I mean you're there. Actually, that's a more controversial stance than it ought to be. <laughs> no, but like your great schools there. I mean, on the university level, like Stanford and Berkeley, and you know, so many in the San Francisco Bay Area um, but yeah I, I'm always thinking about how we might improve our educational models or maybe we can be more um, you know in the Bay Area there's a big drive towards it's not the push isn't the arts let's say and you've seen the way um, it's become no I mean um, I'm always reluctant to kind of give too many opinions on education because sure. I don't know anything about it Uh I haven't studied it at all, and I haven't really spent that much time in any kind of educational structure other than my own schooling. Uh So I had some really wonderful teachers um, who were often working under extraordinary uh, pressure Uh 
um, and who were nevertheless were quite luminous and wonderful. Um, mm -hmm. And I attended a university in which exploration was certainly encouraged. Mm -hmm. It does seem like there's um, not a lot of that um, immediately visible at mm -hmm. um, some institutions that it seems ought to favor that more. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, what you really see in California is just a widening gap of inequality. And so the educational opportunities and the quality of education that is available is um, uh, of a concern because it's um, that's following the kind of inequality model. And so there's a very kind of creme de la creme education that you can receive if you are lucky enough to have one of those slots. And then there's... Um, in kind of increasing chaos, I think, on the other side, which is spooky. Yeah. It's, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just, I do think about it, and I don't really have the answers. One thing that I want to be said uh, is that, yes, there's, um, Everyone's saying that, well, of course, reading is important, but it's almost like reading for data now. And one thing that I appreciated is, and I didn't know what I was learning, but reading not just the classics, but reading great books or even reading bad books, but just being in that world of language helped me immeasurably. And it's not about learning the data. It was just about having versatility of language, of being able to, you know, yeah, and I think there's always been a force fighting that in children's literature. Mm -hmm. um, it, it where There's always been a kind of swath of educational or pedagogical or political concerns mm -hmm. in which the literature given to children has to have some sort of literalist utility. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, you read a book to learn certain things, whether they're certain attitudes or certain social truths or certain um, political agendas. And... Mm -hmm. Some of those truths and political agendas are very attractive and ones that I hold, but I don't think that's what the purpose of literature is. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a battleground in children's literature. And it kind of waxes and wanes, and right now I think the people who are banning books and calling certain books for young people improper are more likely to come from a left-wing political side. Mm -hmm. For a long time they used to come from a right-wing political side. But I mean, I think that's always been a battleground, and I think it's exactly as you say, it's a, it's a different form of reading for data, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. that you read a book in order to learn some lesson that educators are comfortable with. And I just think that living, um, immersing yourself, particularly like the books that you've written for young people that are take place over volumes, think about the immense complexity of thinking that you know better than I do, just of planning that. So from there, they, they have to... <laughs> yes, it's more <laughs> complex than anything you can imagine. <laughs> no, but it, it really is. Like writing any novel is complex, but, you know, plotting over a series and the complexity of sentences and all these things and nuanced thinking to give that as a gift to young people um, is it does immense good and they're having fun doing it I believe and they don't realize they're keeping track of all this stuff you know um, yeah I think so too and I mean um, for people who don't like reading when mm -hmm. they're adults where did they learn that well they mm -hmm. probably learned it when they were getting an education yeah it's probably because they were given books that were not interesting to them mm -hmm. it's probably because no one was paying attention to what kind of a reader they are and what they might find interesting Mm -hmm. right? It's probably because so much of literature in particular is taught as if it's a secret code mm -hmm. and that it's written difficultly mm -hmm. and that you have to squint at it and figure out what it is that it's that is meant to convey. Mm -hmm. And that um, is tiresome. Yeah. <laughs> so no wonder no one likes it. Yeah. And uh, so if I were 
if I were a, a utopian king who was designing the perfect educational system, certainly the way we approach literature would change a lot. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, there's some really passionate teachers that I've seen and, and they bring, you know, they have all these novel ways of um, uh, introducing a, a love of literature and reading or they bring in in our inner city projects like hip hop or whatever, or whatever they love into it. So it's not a separate, like it doesn't exist on another planet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my hat is off to the many, many inspiring teachers who are all over the world and I was lucky to have many of them. It's more, I mean, it, it, I don't think it usually comes from an individual teacher level. It's more mm -hmm. kind of the designing of a curriculum that is often increasingly literalist. And many universities seem only to be offering the liberal arts because they'll offer some kind of utility in the long term. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a dangerous way to go. You know, if you only, only are offering music classes because you've read that music will make you a better engineer, that's not really a great way to learn music. I'm Gabriela Garcia Stolfi, a student at American University majoring in communications and minoring in international relations. Here at the Creative Process, I'm the social justice and community initiatives podcaster. Over the span of our lives, we spend most of our child life learning and most of our adult life unlearning the things we learned in childhood. As I venture through this transition into adulthood, the sentiment could not resonate more with me. Specifically with education, the system within the United States is one that generally has a purpose of providing a secondary utility. As Daniel Handler points out, it never really feels as if it's just learning to learn or just reading to read that matters, rather the application and grades that accompany it. Handler also makes the point that reading in school is like reading for data, where you're trying to learn or take away a lesson that usually educators are the ones that are comfortable with it. I remember not one book in high school that truly impacted me the way my teachers or the curriculum intended. Even when we had the opportunity to pick our own books for projects and such, it still felt as though it was not an experience to be valued, but just another thing that needed to get done. On the other hand, before high school, many of my peers, myself included, would be reading constantly. Usually, the literature we were binging was material like Percy Jackson and definitely a series of unfortunate events and it was this material that truly ingrained our childhoods with the creative spark. Now, my friends and I always discuss just how difficult it is to rewire the brain that was made to read for data into one that just enjoys the experience and knows no bounds to any educator or system. The book that has embodied this for me during quarantine has been Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes's Women Who Run With the Wolves. In this book, Estes completely dives into the feminine and masculine psyches and puts into words what nature and spirit have been trying to communicate to us through our bodies, minds, and souls. While it has been more than a couple of months since I've started this book, I have no deadlines, rubrics, or project guidelines to adhere to. It just might be the first time I'm reading just to read and learning just to learn. Exactly. And I'm just looking at some of the illustrations behind you. And we mentioned the collaborations on, on television. And I, and I think another way to really celebrate the importance of reading and writing is to uh, celebrate the links to other mediums. Could you talk a little bit about your collaborations in those other mediums? Um, yeah, I mean, I am married to an illustrator, yes. so, uh, <laughs> so we collaborate a lot, even when we're not working together. So we work together on a few books, but then we also uh, have this household 
um, and this child. Uh-huh. So that's a major collaboration. Um, but I think in children's books, you know, we all have memories of staring at some favorite illustration, whether it was in a picture book when we were only kind of learning to read or whether it was something that really set fire to the imagination, a book we were reading by ourselves that kind of helped anchor us in a text that might otherwise have been a little confusing or off-putting. So I've been lucky enough to work with um, a wide variety of uh, illustrators who um, are always inspiring to learn from. So, I mean, Brad Helquist and I had very little communication when he was um, illustrating a series of unfortunate events because it seemed to go best that way. Uh-huh. When I worked with Seth, who did all four volumes and an uh, additional book for All the Wrong Questions, um, it was fascinating learning about him and um, the kind of approaches he takes, and he's a uh, fascinating, and I don't think he would mind my saying, peculiar person. <laughs> um, I've done a bunch of books with Myra Kalman, who's yeah. a very um, freewheeling visual artist, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, I'm always feeling like I'm lagging behind her. She's always uh, blazing in a direction that um, I had not seen before I met her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Carson Ellis, Matthew Forsyth, um, uh, Rilla Alexander, I've just worked with some really extraordinary and marvelous people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I have no... Not only am I, do I, can I not draw my way out of a mm-hmm. paper bag, but I don't have a strong visual sense at all. Oh. I always am saying to my wife, couldn't we buy this chair and put it in the corner of the room? And she'll say, like, that is ten times too large than anything can fit in that corner that mm-hmm. you're talking about. So it's been very good to be able to um, let someone else <laughs> cover up for my weakness in that regard. Yeah, it's and yeah, it it must be well now you're familiar with the process, but it must be strange for like if you recall the first time your work was interpreted on a visual level. I mean, be, beyond the visual level of the readers' minds. Yeah, well, it, and it, and it changes so quickly, you know. So if you, um, I'm working with an illustrator now on a picture book text. So I did kind of a draft of it, and then he, um, kind of very quickly sketched out what the book might look like, and then. Um, we talked about it and immediately saw that some big chunk of the text needed to change and so I kind of hold up to to do that and um, just the way in which that bounces back and forth and um, I just find it inspiring um, particularly when you're meeting in person with an illustrator and they say oh or it could go like this and then they draw something up they just sketch something else and because you know their work and you know how it's going to go it's just instantly um, magical I worked with a book uh, by John Clausen, with John Clausen called The Dark, and he yes. um, is really a, a master of kind of structure, figuring out, oh, if this page looks like this, then this page will look like this, and when you turn the page, it'll create this effect, and that's very magical. Um, Myra tends to say, oh, you know what, let's not do anything that we've just talked about for the past two weeks. We're going to do this whole new thing, because it makes more sense, and it does. Um, Rilla Alexander is so bright and beautiful with color, and so to see um, the landscapes that she's making is change very, very quickly and um, and uh, magically to my eye as we're talking about changes in the book. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
well, I mean, I can shower praises upon my wife for a long time, but I think people will find me suspect. <laughs> but um, working with Lisa Brown is a delight as well. <laughs> no, but it, it must be so interesting. And then to go from like a still image or a sequence of still images to go to the, the, the moving image and what that's like. Or, I mean, I don't know how involved you would be because you were also a producer on a series of unfortunate events. So were you like involved in yeah, casting? Yeah, and I ran the writer's room. Yes, and the, the writer's Wow. Um, and I mean, yeah, that's a whole other kind of, I mean, the it's exponentially collaborative, right? Yeah. It kind of begins, at least from my end, with a small group of people in a room and some index cards and bulletin boards and whiteboards where we're kind of planning things out. And then we were, um, I was uh, very happy to run the room in a super collaborative way so that everyone was already guaranteed credit and so there was very little competition. There was more collaboration, so if something wasn't working well, you could hand it to someone else and not feel like that was going to hurt you career-wise. Mm-hmm. So it began with this very small room full of personal dynamics that we're all working out and trying to move forward on, and then it moves into more and more people. You know, mm-hmm. you get this script, and then it gets in the hands of the costume designer, and they have a staff, and they have sketches, and they have start have swaths of cloth, and it's mm-hmm. getting you know kind of bigger and bigger and bigger, and then you move into a room, and they're building something, and everyone's running around, and... Um, and suddenly, and everyone I know who has written something that has been filmed for television or for the movies has had this feeling, you're suddenly the least essential person. It all mm-hmm. kind of came from you. Yeah. But suddenly you're in this huge room and, you know, you have to get out of the way. People are dragging ladders to go put something up so the shadows fall in the way that, that seems most like the tone that you wrote a long time ago. And that's a very bewildering moment when you're kind of in the way of your own creation. Yeah, that's so strange. Um, yeah, but it's, and it's bizarre, and then, and then it just kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then it's done, and then it's being released to people, and then people all over the world who have never met you, who will never communicate with you, are viewing it, and, um, and then with kind of the web, you can see how conversations are going with that, and strangers are talking about you without any regard to you or, mm-hmm. or anything like that, and you see various reactions, and um, that's fascinating, too. Yeah, it is. It, I imagine it's, it's so strange that, um, and I think that speaking of the not just the inventiveness of the words and the stories and the characters, and the visualization of that is great. And I also love uh, the way in that certain elements, and in your other writing, how, um, how tr- San Francisco is transformed. Yes, how elements into it's not quite. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm it's, a real um, snob about San Francisco. I grew up here and um, I lived a few other places here and there, but mm-hmm. mostly have lived here and I'm certainly not leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, I find this place to be an endlessly magical one, and mm-hmm. it is one in which so many people have come to find uh, sanctuary or acceptance, the various. Um, kind of reinventions and um, pioneer fantasies that come mm-hmm. in San Francisco are so enormous, even for California, which is already its kind of own imagined mm-hmm. space, that yeah. um, it's constantly erasing its history in, um, in favor of some enormous revolution. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all pretty fascinating. And it certainly gives you leeway when you're writing about San Francisco that you feel like it can go in any direction you want because it's mm-hmm. gone in so many directions and it's already in so many directions simultaneously 
unlike other locations I've been that are so beholden to their own history with San Francisco, it's almost like you can just make it up from scratch when you're writing about it. So that's exciting. And I think it's a beautiful city and I have family there and I'm in Paris, so I feel we're sort of twin. They always said that, that it was a little bit twin. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Paris, also a magical city for sure. <laughs> it's, it's... You heard it here first, podcast <laughs> audience. Paris is a nice place. <laughs> no, I feel at home, well, because I was at family there, but I mean, I feel at home when I go to San Francisco and um, and because it has that European element, so that, but I, yeah, it's it's important. Yeah, I mean, I think what one thing that San Francisco and Paris have in common is that they take beauty very seriously, and it was yeah. built along aesthetic lines. Mm-hmm. And so, even when that's threatened by the juggernaut of the corporate culture of late capitalism, mm-hmm. as everything is, you still um, th- there's still kind of the bones of the city that was built for beauty. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I do actually remember the first time I went to Paris, I kept. I had a camera with me and, and kind of I couldn't get a wide enough angle. You know, I would uh-huh. say, oh, I want to take a picture of this beautiful, tiny little thing. But I would say, but you really have to see, you know, the shelf on which it is. And then the shelf, you have to see the room. And the room, you have to see the building. And it's like I, I couldn't take a, a, a big enough picture of Paris. And I also just had that feeling that, I mean, it's so unremarkable to say that Paris is beautiful. Everyone mm-hmm. knows that it's beautiful. Even if you've never been or never even seen it, you've mm-hmm. heard somehow that Paris is beautiful and yet it still seems like an understatement when you get to Paris you know Mm -hmm. you still have this feeling that is um why didn't anybody tell me how beautiful it is (laughs) I mean aside from all of the culture relentlessly telling me how beautiful it is but why didn't anybody tell me it was this beautiful and yeah and I know what you mean about taking a photo because you always feel well maybe like behind my shoulder there's something else I'm missing yeah (laughs) um yeah you need like a, a a 360-degree camera of endless range. <laughs> and you know, it's another big mystery or disappointment. It's, it's, I, I think that it's like no more beauty. I mean, I think it's beautiful. Like It's, it's most beautiful like right now because it's like empty. <laughs> no one's there and we're all missing it, you know, like we're only allowed to go out to shop. So it's kind of strange. And I'm sure San Francisco, too, is like, uh, you know, thriving and beautiful nature there and um, I'm sure that it's like probably and it's one of its pretty and the people make it beautiful I mean I guess but yeah. there's a certain austere beauty to emptiness yeah. I will say that but um, I have a view from my house and part of it has some kind of big thoroughfares that are normally jammed with mm-hmm. cars and to see it empty is not a nice feeling no, and it's I think San Francisco actually is at its most beautiful when it's kind of vibrant and full of people and they're mm-hmm. all bumping up against one another and um, to feel that missing, and not only missing, but um, you know, something that will return very carefully and perhaps in an entirely changed way, um, is very unnerving. So no, it's not San Francisco's most beautiful time in my view. Yeah, panic is not beautiful. <laughs> Anxiety is yeah, not beautiful. Right. There's something a little ugly about worry. <laughs> um, I'm going to steal a bit of a question for, from you because I'd heard a public conversation you did with Neil Gaiman, and you asked him because I thought it was good. Uh, is there a sense of one? Is there any sense of wonder left in the world? And I thought, wow. <laughs> oh yeah, I think someone else. I think that was a. I think I read that question out loud from someone else, but I'll oh, happily take credit for sorry. it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that, I mean, uh, Mr. Gaiman and I are friends, mm-hmm. and um, I, uh, I have a great time um, uh, talking with him really about anything, mm-hmm. but um, I think he and I are both interested in the enchantment 
of the world mm-hmm. at slightly different angles maybe mm-hmm. but um we both see a lot of magic in places and that to me seems pretty essential for the work of a writer is mm-hmm. or at least the kind of writing that i admire most is mm-hmm. to um to see that magic and that enchantment of one kind or another yeah, and that's what I was, I guess I was really, like, when I first asked you, is that I, it's like, how do you maintain, I think it's actually one of the, not just for writers, for young people or writers of fantastic uh, literature or whatever, uh, is that it's like a challenge for any artist, is how do you maintain that sense of enchantment um, through maturity? You know, not naivety, but how do you, right. yeah, how do you keep the magic, right? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, you just have to look. You just have to kind of wander the world. Mm-hmm. I think um, that if you look, it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of in the same way that people we know who are determined to be um, bitter or um, infuriated or sad, you know, will find a way to be upset about even the happiest of moments. And I think in the same way that you can find um, enchantment in what seems the most ordinary. Right. Um, And then as you, you know, write um, books that are for... um, primarily in an older audience do you um I don't know how you divide that because like you have like your kind of two writing selves or how does that um how do you transition between that I guess or what things do you yeah how do I I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I mean they don't feel like really different things to me Mm -hmm. I think um you know, there was never an idea that I had for a book that I thought, oh, this is for children, and then it turned out to be for adults or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I think I always knew. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the kind of project will change, but just the process of um, having blank paper and um, inspirational books and notes on hand or maybe a few images or even little items that can kind of lead you on the way but I mean I write them all on the same boring uh-huh. legal pads uh-huh. and um, I it feels like the same project to me so right. people are always asking me that and um, I know of course that there, I, there's books of mine that are way more visible than other ones and that that's not um, I'm not trying to pretend that um, it's, it's all some plateau but uh-huh. uh, the process of working on them feels the same yeah, so like uh, Bottle Grove or, um, you know, I know it feels the same and you might reserve certain observations that you would know that, well, like an, uh, my adult readership is going to understand that more or... Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, people have asked before, you know, were, were you, did you ever want to put things in a series of unfortunate events that were too terrible for children and they made, uh-huh. them, they made you take them out or something? And that just didn't happen because of the way that the world is constructed and so mm-hmm. similarly um, with a book like Bottle Grove the kind of observations that go into thinking about San Francisco in the present day and um, about kind of hanging out in bars as many of the characters do in the mm-hmm. novel and those kind of things um, they all kind of go in that bucket so if I thought of something that seemed to be part of that world then, then it went into the book mm-hmm. um, which is I think the same time as some people have concerns that 
young fans of the Lemony Snicket books will pick up these other books and find something shocking. And I just mm. think, um, I mean, first of all, um, young people usually have a very good sense of what's for them and what isn't for them. Mm. Now, then they might want something that's not for them because they're curious about it, and then there it will be, but they won't think it's for them. Mm. Um, you know, no one's going to read Bottle Grove who's a nine-year-old and say, oh, well, I should be hanging out in bars. <laughs> I don't think that's <laughs> that's that kind of literalist interpretation of literature again that gets you nowhere. Yes, and so yes, it's interesting because I imagine that um, young readers are like, as you said, you would get these comments or you'd see like chat groups or whatever. Do you ever get, um, you know, particularly as you're working on like a, a series where you're kind of getting feedback, and sometimes there are uh, ideas may bubble up from the audience that. I don't know, are they nudging you sometimes? Or is it like sometimes there's something fascinating that they, they can, you know, have you ever been surprised by well, their well, visions? I, mean, I, don't, I don't participate in those kind of conversations a lot. Yeah. I'm not a very online person, truth yeah. be told. I mean, obviously, like everyone else, we all have devices that are permanently connected to the internet 24-7. But mm -hmm. I mean, I am not um, participating in a world of those conversations very often. Mm -hmm. So sometimes someone will point me towards something and it'll be fun to see a little conversation going on about something of mine or something about me, but um, for the most part, I'm not participating in that. And um, But I just like the idea that um, people have taken my work with them mm -hmm. and um, thought about it on their own time and let their own imagination kind of take it and run with it. Um, because I know that's what I do, you know, it's um, all those kind of magical spaces that you inhabit when you're in art that's entrancing for you. You know, if you see a painter whose style really appeals to you in a museum and then you walk around the world and you feel like it's being painted by that person, uh -huh. right, or the music that you listen to becomes kind of a soundtrack of your own life as if it's uh -huh. attached to events in your own life and not just made by people you don't know who are playing instruments. Um, and I think literature certainly works that way very elastically. You know, when you're a child, you kind of feel like you're friends with the characters and the books, or you're kind of in the book. And you, and I think that that's a really magical space of consciousness that um, that literature plays with. And so I'm happy when people are thinking about stuff from my books, but I'm not really going there very often. Sure, it's nice to know that it's so alive to them that they like. Wow, it's like that they believe in it. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. Did you, when you were younger, or did you ever do? I don't like this word fan fiction, but did you ever like do a like a you know spin off and in the direction from any of the stories you had read as a as a young person? Yeah, I mean, I I I also I didn't do anything that anyone would have labeled as official fan fiction, mm -hmm. which was not a phrase of which I was aware when yeah. I was young. Um, but kind of the story you have in your head where you're young where, you know, you're kind of hand solo, but then you're also in half magic and you have the talking goose from the mm. fairy tale that you read or however that goes. You know, you mm. kind of make this patchwork. And mm. so I think, I mean, it's hard to imagine someone whose early writings aren't some kind of fan fiction, right? Yeah. Because the only reason why they're attracted to writing is that they're attracted by something. They're, there's something that is appealing to them. So... Mm. You know, whether it's Gwendolyn Brooks or um, Star Wars, you're going to have mm -hmm. something that's really driving you and you're going to imitate it in some way. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah, I, I think that there are, that we, we, we learn somehow by modeling um, those examples of the people who enchanted us. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the question when people say, are your characters based on real people? And you think, uh -huh. well, how else? <laughs> I mean, how would you even know what people were if you didn't, if you hadn't met any? So, of course, they're going to have an effect <laughs> on you, you know, or any of them, people with just the name change or something? No. But, um, the, but there, it's not a, a um, it, it have to, you, real life is always going to inform what you're doing. Yeah. So. I don't think, yeah, we wouldn't want to read about it if, if it if it wasn't based a bit on life. But that's a strange thing. Well, people are always going to, people love, like, detective stories of all kinds. And they're always trying to play detective with your life. And, um, right. Um, but who were the readers? You know, you talked a little bit about teachers. I mean, as you were growing up in terms of in your family, um, are there all storytellers in, in one way or another in your family? Well... I was raised Jewish, and the Jewish wing of my family um, largely fled Germany during the rise of um, Nazi terror, and so many of them didn't make it, and furthermore, it was an enormous family to begin with, and so the, the family that I grew up with, the extended family that I grew up with, are not very necessarily very close to me on the family tree, so a lot of cousins that are several times removed or distant cousins were cousins that I saw on major holidays and who I consider family to this day. But I think part of that kind of scattershot history meant that the story of my family was being told a lot around the dinner table and the story of fleeing from Germany and the story of being Jewish and being under threat. And that was the storytelling that I think I really inhaled when I was young. And it wasn't even necessarily the most frequent kind of storytelling, but it was not, and it wasn't for any literary reasons or artistic reasons. It was just, that was what you talked about. So when I think about storytellers in my family, that's what I think. You know, my father was not someone who invented a new story for me every night, and um, my mother and father were both big readers, but my mother also was not, um, you know, a super creative uh, person in terms of artistic endeavors, but... Um, but she told a lot of stories from her childhood, and my father's family told a lot of stories of their history, and I think that was the kind of storytelling that um, sunk in me deepest. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's true. It's interesting how trauma or even trauma experienced by those close to you, or how the, even the absence of a story when people avoid telling it can build a yeah. curiosity, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have, have that particular story in my family, but I can imagine... Um, how that can leave its shadow and I can see now as you say that um, it, I, I can see its shadows in different works that um, in your in your different books but I um, you've been so, so open and I don't want to I want I want to let you go back to your story so I just want to ask a few like in closing some questions about the future we were talking a little bit about technology uh, today is sure. Earth Day um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, we're all like living through <laughs> this kind of strange times. Um, but I guess as you think about the future and the next generation and the importance of writing and the arts, I mean, um, what are some things that you would like to do to like build a better tomorrow and how should the arts be a part of that or why? Um, why? I mean, I think that every technological and social and political advance that we've made in our world came from imagination, right? Someone thought of it 
first. And I think that being involved in the business of imagination and the world of imagination is an essential task for building a society. I am not someone that I would call an activist, Mm -hmm. and I'm not um, the kind of writer who seeks to kind of go out in the world, social change in 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 any direct way. You know, I know a lot of artists who they'll go someplace and they'll work with people and they'll make this thing together that is a work of art, but also a work of political change. And that's, those are not my instincts at all. And so I think whatever change is coming directly from my work is happening in that kind of strange liminal space where you... And I hear from people who say, I was inspired by this of yours, and now I'm this kind of person, or now I'm doing this, and that makes me happy and it's delightful. Um, And then, of course, the enormous and surprising um, success of a series of unfortunate events has enabled my family to give a lot of money to causes that are important to us. And so that feels to me like the most direct. It's kind of like a, it's not that fun to talk about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we seek out and organizations seek us out and we support causes that are important to us and I think there's nothing more powerful than when you hear of a noble organization who needs a specific sum of money for Mm -hmm. a specific thing they're trying to do and Mm -hmm. to you to try to help reach that goal Mm -hmm. or even if you're lucky to be able to help them reach that goal entirely is a really powerful feeling and you see that kind of change right away Mm -hmm. you know if some if something is able to open its doors or continue to offer the services that they're doing um, that's a very powerful feeling. So when I think about how my art enacts social change, part of it is that as it is sold well in the mm-hmm. capitalist sphere, sphere, we get to give that money, which um, by rights should have been going to noble causes anyway, but it's instead going to noble causes by this indirect route. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that everyone should buy my books because <laughs> I'm, I'm able to change the world that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, you know, you've done, you're very, very humble about this. And I, I only know, I'm sure a fraction, I know that you've given very significantly to Planned Parenthood. And I'm sure there's um, many, and through your, you know, uh, advocacy for just like um, championing the imagination. I think that that's a, one of the noble causes, actually, as you say. It is actually a noble cause in itself. Um, because... The, yeah. uh, well, thanks. I mean, it's... Um uh, it definitely, um, I will say, being able to give away money gives me the kind of pleasure that feels very selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that but it, it kind of literally, and my brain chemistry makes me happy in a mm-hmm. way that um, an ice cream cone makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And so um, I like being a part of it, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's very beautiful what you've done. And thank you, Daniel Handler, Lemony Snicket, for your stories full of magic and humor, darkness and light for children and adults, for helping young people free their imaginations and kindle a sense of wonder in this bewildering world. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Gabriela Garcia Astolfi. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. And Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.